Um, ideally, I would have liked to have presented my views on, on things in a more constructive and coherent manner. But I felt a very strong prophetic tug just to speak. And, and I think that's what Sean also did, just speak and release the things that's in our hearts. And we've come to you in a way where we just felt that being naked was far more easier than trying to come with a nice presentation of, of, uh, of a certain set of teachings. Um, by now, you would have gathered that we're very passionate about the fact that we believe this is a fresh season in the church and that the season affords us the opportunity to critically analyze what we're building and if and where possible, adjust it so that we can bring alignment uh, to that which we're building with the eternal purpose of God. The ultimate objective is in this present, uh, the, the present emphasis of this present season is that we'd get back to the heart of that which God wants to do in, um, in the earth presently. Uh, the longing desire is that that whatever we build will be according to the pattern that God has given to us. That's the ultimate objective. And when we build according to divine order, divine pattern, the blueprint of the heavens, I'm convinced we'll see a fresh manifestation of God's presence in the church like we've never seen before. The love for God will come back. And um, uh, as I was saying in the last session as we were rounding up, the piercing of the year is a critical imagery for me that we all need to have our ears pierced so that the world will know that we have freely chosen to become slaves to Christ. And we are slaves only to Christ. We are his bond slaves. In doing that, obedience to God's word is critical. And uh, one of the major shifts that have taken place in recent times is that there's been a passionate desire to rediscover what God recorded in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the, there's a shift back to the Word of God. And for me personally, the journey has been about probably 19 years now. It started in 1994, well, 20th year this year. 20 years since I went to Peter Marisburg and then subsequently went to Santon. And one of the things I had to do and I say this respectfully, my, actually my Dr. Irvin is here, he taught me in Bible college. So it's not nice to have your lecturer here in this session. So if I'm dotting my I's and crossing my T's, it's because of him today in this session. But he taught us in Bible college and he's been a great teacher, impacted our lives, marked it in a very unique way. And so it's great to have him here. But um, I had to do something very, very consciously, the Lord told me to do this, because at the time when I left the little town of Greytown to go and plant this church in Peter Marisburg, I was doing my postgraduate studies, and I would have probably gone on further today in the studies, and I, I did one of the most reckless things. I was studying with Eunice at that time. I heard God clearly tell me to shut down the study, to suspend it. Literally, I heard God, and it was at the point where I was just presenting my, my thesis in the honors, uh, on my honors degree at that time. I'm talking about 1993, 1994. And I, so 
surrendered the de degree because I did not finish the, I did not present the paper. And the Lord said he wants to take me on a journey into discovering what the church is. And he, he did it by doing things that I can only give an interpretation to retrospectively. Firstly, he, he, he taught me how to disconnect, how to cut the umbilical cord. And uh, for a season, I, could, I did, did not even have the desire to read a book. Literally, not the desire to read a book. I would open the, and I'm an avid reader. I love reading. I've got <laughs> books that are on my shelves that I, I would go into a bookshop and I'd buy a book, bring it home and open the pages to it and just read a page and literally I'd fall off into a sleep. I couldn't understand it. And for years that had happened until now I can go back and read. But for those, that, those years I was being... I was being disconnected from everything, and God gave me a fresh hunger for the Bible. The fresh hunger. I had to literally go and buy new Bibles, read them from cover to cover, read them over and over again, read them and read them, and, and ignore the notes I made in the previous dispensation of my journey with God. And it was not an easy time because I had to deal with issues in my dogmatic, you know, view of things. I had to deal with myself. I had fevers, literally fevers, when I would hear speakers say things or read things that contradicted what I believed. I couldn't accept it at first, but at least God allowed me to have a noble enough heart not to judge what people were saying or what I was reading without first searching my own heart and searching the scriptures the way it should be searched. And so I went through that journey. And through that process, he would give me bits and pieces of information, which I call revelation to them. And the, the revelation became the raw material that I used to build into the corporate construct of our house. And the house was not structures and systems, believe me. They came later. It was people that became the structures and systems. It was people. We'd build these values, build these principles, build them, line upon line, precept upon precept, make mistakes as we're building, correct them, stand before my people and say, I think we misinterpreted that. Let's correct it now. And was not prepared, and was not shy to say we made a mistake. And so we went through that journey and we started to build. And God said, as, as you would be built, I will bring people to you. I, I, I now understand the force field of attraction because as we built, people were attracted to us. They started coming to our schools from different parts of the world and they would come and study what we sang. And uh, it was unconventional. It was provocative. And you know, you all know, you would agree with me, the day of the Lord is a day of provocation. It challenges the status quo of how we view things. Paradigms are shifted. I mean, we know Jesus came in the day of the Lord. That's how the Bible describes his coming, in the day of the Lord. And his very presentation and approach to the religion caused such provocation that eventually he was killed by those who could not understand him. And, um, but provocation challenges the status quo of how we think. It, it causes us to go and review our positions. Uh, it imposes upon us this biblical 
concept called repentance. Change, not just simply the way you think, but, but change the cradle that produces thoughts. Change the hard drive that, that, that gives you a perspective of things. And that's not easy. But I, I measured it by two things, all our development. I measured it by a growing love for God and by an increasing measure of his presence. And believe me, I came out of a background, you know, in the first two years of our planting of, of River of Life, in 1994 we planted, on 2nd of October 1994, we planted this church. And I'm a, I'm a Pentecostal, so you must understand, that I cut my teeth on all-night prayers and, and holiness and purity and godliness, and I still believe in all those things. And fasting was a big thing with me. And fasting for us was total abstinence. Total abstinence, just water. And um, we would fast and we would pray uh, and so forth. And God told us to go on a 21 day fast in 1996, 95, I think, or 6. And we were fasting. And some of us chose to stay away from food for the whole 21 days, no breaking of it. And each night we'd meet in our church. Each night in our church we would meet in Peter Marisburg, about 50 of us. We'd be on our knees, not a song would be sung, not a word would be preached, as we would be waiting on the Lord, just in prayer. The cloud of glory would just come into the place, literally, a cloud. We, we were carried in the spirit into places over in the earth, literally. We would see things that will happen in places like India, China, Africa. That's why I'm convinced that Africa is going to be the geospiritual shift taking place from the first world to the emerging world. Africa is going to become a major player in administrating God's glory in the season. And that, you know, like how we would go to Brownsville and to other places to study revivals? People are going to come to study God's word here. Yeah. Not just manifestations of his power. Uh, they're going to come to study his wisdom, the appearing of his glory. We saw this. Little children spoke in fluent languages, you know, uh, uh, from, uh, of different nations, not just tongues as we understand it, but literally we saw little kids. We heard them sing in the most fluent languages of different nations. And we had great times. Some for hours sometimes we would be completely slain in God's presence, completely carried away. Some of us would be drunken, and we had all these manifestations. It was exactly the 21-day fast went into, turned out to be a 60-day revival in our church. We saw healings, miracles, surgical procedures done on the wounds that people were carrying in their psyche, their emotions, their mind, their whole person. Serious things happened. One day, at the, on the 60th day, I'll never forget this, I was in my own home on my knees before God. And I said, God, how long will this revival go on? How much longer? And I heard God so clearly. I knew it was not me. It was not in my paradigm to say that. I heard God say, how long do you want to stay here? I said to him, as long as you want me to. He says, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this revival. I'm here to show you I can give you all of that. But I will stay with you as long as you want to stay. But I want to compress that into you 
so that you can take it to the world. As long as you stay here, the world will not get changed. That's what he said. I said, there I got my, what I would call my assignment. You can call it an apostolic assignment. He said, you can have the presence, but don't look for manifestations. Take my presence. Take that mountain that's in you. Because we were like at a mountain, erupting with rhema words and powerful things. And you can take it to the earth, and I will, I will show you the transformation of God, uh, uh, of my presence. And we've seen how lives have been literally transformed. A lot of people can argue with our doctrine today, but they can't argue with our testimony. And you know, you, you overcome the enemy with the testimony of Jesus and the blood of the Lamb and His blood. And we've seen, you know, that's why I believe in the come and see principle. I'm not interested in how well a person presents a teaching uh, because we are very good at that today. But for me, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, um, and when the disciples of John discovered that Jesus is the one they were looking for, behold the lamb, some followed him and Jesus asked them, what are you doing? And they responded by saying, we want to know where you live. He could have given them his address or his business card. But he didn't give them his address. He said, come and see. And that's the principle. Wisdom can't be heard. It must be seen to be heard. That's the wisdom of God. Uh, the Queen of Sheba understood that for her to know the wisdom of Solomon, she must see how it, how it will translate in the house he builds, in the in the seating of his servants and their clothing, the ministry teams around his table, and these are different administrations, the mixture of his wine, the quality of his meat, and also how people would test the doctrine, taste the wine that he would present to those at the table. Wisdom builds the house, and wisdom cannot be heard. It must first be seen to be heard. And... Um, and I, I feel today that we need to, we cannot change South Africa. We cannot change Africa. And we build modelistic communities that exhibit the man, the, the in, the, that, that exhibit Christ, the incarnate Christ into our systems. All that God wants is a Christological view of the church, not an earthly view. The church in the earth must reflect Christ in its fullness. Christ in you, the hope of glory is the passionate cry of an apostolic culture. Not naming our networks and our thing. I mean, we don't have a network called Gate. I was using that as an example. I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I just left an affiliation. I just left a group, an alliance, simply because I believe that the wrong things were being built. Literally, it's not easy when God speaks to you because you don't want to build anything else but the name of Christ in the earth. Literally. Nothing else. Yes, we can use vehicles. We can use mediums and an and, and, and alliance of relationships to do that, like networks. But ultimately, Christ must be seen and not us. And Christ must be so strong in us that people can't see us. They only see Christ. And that's the passion. So there's two things that, that I use to measure what I'm doing. One is... Is what I'm building drawing people closer to God? 
And number two, am I being, close, being drawn closer to God in that which I'm actively involved in? Is there a passionate hunger and love for God? And I found that we cannot love God. Hear me very carefully. We cannot love God if we do not love His Word. To love God, you have to love His Word. Not private interpretations of His Word, His Word. You can't love God by saying, I pray. God doesn't say your love for Him is defined by how your prayer life, your worship life. What the Bible says, if you love me, you love my word. That's what the Bible says. I, you know, the first church amongst the seven, I want to just draw a reference to it today and probably talk about another church there called Pergamos. The first church was the church at Ephesus. This is a very unique church in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Very unique church because these are seven, the seven church, it's not seven churches, it's one church giving seven expressions of Christ. That's how I see the seven churches in Asia. It's the church at Asia, subdivided into micro units, but each unit exhibiting a dimension, and that's how we get a plurality of expression. That's how we get it. This is, this is how in one, in one unit, God is one, but you can find three in one. One in three. Um, uh, when we look at the church at Ephesus, the unique thing about the church of Ephesus was, it was a church that I refer to as the first amongst equals. It was a church, arguably, that had a view of things that the other six churches didn't have. This is the only church that saw how Christ walked amongst the seven candlesticks. And the only church that saw the seven stars in his hands, which is a picture of the seven messages. So this church not only knew its own assignment, but it knew the assignment of every one of the other churches. And if you read the, the, the Revelation account of this church, this church loved God. I mean, I mean not loved God, but was, was passionate about protecting its apostolic assignment. It ate, hated error in any one of the other churches. It was intolerant towards any church not fulfilling its assignment. In fact, this church, as I see it, was the only church that had a global view of how the whole church should function. I call this an apostolic type amongst the seven, the first amongst equals. But at the end of a great list of commendations, which we all would probably you know, consider as great feathers in our cap, at the end of all of this, God says, but you have gone away from your first love for me. And then he says, you must go back to return to your first love. You must go and do the things you first did. Do the things you first did. In other words, first love was not an emotional thing. It was an action. You had to do something you first did to get back to your first love. And God said, if you don't do that, I will remove you from the candlesticks. In other words, I'll remove your unique place from the seven churches. And, and I found this to be extremely fearful. So I, I, I tried to, to get to know what did this church first do that it was not doing now. And I couldn't help but go back to the foundation of this church in a historical setting in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19... Paul meets a group of 12 disciples of John the Baptist who are still celebrating the teachings of John the Baptist. 
and still functioning in what I would call an old order. And I mean, this is, now Christ has come and gone. We've got a post-resurrection view of the church, and they're still operating in, a, you know, in the pre-Christ era of John the Baptist. And, and so these people didn't know about Christ. They didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, etc. They didn't even understand salvation. So Paul converts them, gets them to accept the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then if you read through the chapters, you will find that for three years, these 12, these 12 disciples were with Paul day and night. Day and night, studying the word of God. For, 12, for three years, 12 disciples, the founding fathers of the Ephesus church, which will become the first amongst the seven churches, who has a global view of how every one of the other churches should function. They only studied the word from day and night. And you know the revival that took place. As they studied the word, the grace of God increased. And people brought thousands of books. And they presented it to Paul who had a bonfire and burnt them all. In other words, every ideology, every conceptual design of how life should function was eliminated. And they went back to the Bible. Went back to the Bible. The Bible was the absolute center. Sola Scriptura. The word of God only became the center. God convicted me when I saw this because, you know, believe me when I tell you I travel every week to some country, to some city, to some nation, to some conference. You get so polished in presenting the things you present because you're going to different nations that sometimes you, can not, you don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to pray. You can still quote the scriptures. Come on, I'm talking to preachers here. Yeah. Talking to preachers. We are so good about everything concerning the Bible, but we have not read the Bible the way it should be read. And God said to me, you can do all the stuff that the church at Ephesus did, but if you do not stick to the word and give yourself totally to the word, you can't be part of an apostolic community. I'll remove your candlestick. In other words, I will just move you out of the way. And that gripped me. That gripped me because I realized that I now understand why the early apostles when they were faced up with the faced with this problem, confronted with this problem of addressing the needs of the Gentile widows who were being prejudiced against um, with the Hebrew widows getting preferential treatment when it came to humanitarian things, social programs, pension aid, whatever. The apostles made a decision. They said, we cannot serve tables. As important as it is, we cannot be involved in the administration of certain things. Our administration is to give ourselves to the word of God in prayer. That's what they said. We will do that, and let me tell you, they did not in any way lose their position of being the leadership of the church. But they understood that the fundamentals for the establishment of God's purposes in the earth is centered around God's word. Do you know that God has exalted his word above his name? And do you know that God has exalted his word above the heavens and the earth? Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word. So where was God's word? I mean, heaven was created on day number two. The earth was created on day number three. 
And if God has exalted his word above his name, his word has to be, or his word above the heavens and the earth, his word has to be in day number one. And we know that day number one is the day that speaks about light, the revelation. Let there be light. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word is light. Am I correct? God is the word. He is the light. In a technical sense, while God is without beginning, the beginning of the word is day number one because in the beginning, which is referring to day number one, the word existed. The word is God. The word is light. And so we need to understand that whatever we clothe on the earth comes from the word. And the word is not just a, a kind of developing an esoteric culture, an academic philosophical culture, an edu intellectual culture. But the word is our life. Because in the word is grace and truth. Everything we need, the absolute standard for everything we need is God's word. So if we truly want to be an apostolic community, our focus has to be on the word of God. It must become our feast. It must become our meal. We must learn how to live of God's word and eat God's word and drink God's word. We have to do the things that God's word expects of us. And when we go back to the Word, not to secular thoughts, not to contextual views of how the church should function, not to, you know, the philosophies that come from this, the postmodern cultures. I, I'm in Santin, I've seen how secular Christianity, contextual Christianity governs it. You want a great church, there's certain things you have to do to have a great church. And I'm not against that. But sometimes we window dress things and we pump our churches to attract the clouds. And the natural man follows natural things, so he comes with that. But he has no spiritual clue concerning what the church is. But when we bring the word back, that's why you'll notice the public reading of scripture is so important for us. You know, I don't believe that praise and worship breaks the atmosphere. That, that's a myth that comes with Pentecostal charismatic liturgy. The, the atmosphere is broken through the word. It is a two-edged sword. You speak the word, it pierces environments. I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. The reading of the scriptures is very important. It creates environment. God created everything by the word, and by the word, he upholds all things. And we need to use this word as a weapon. And I'm not just talking about just quoting scriptures. We must become the word. We must, when people see us and when we whisper, a whisper must be a thunder. So the passion for God's word has to come back. And there's plenty of scriptures that tell us, you know, they say that, is, is it true, uh, Psalm 119 is the center of the Bible, longest chapter, and I think one of the, it's almost the center of the whole, of, uh, of our written scripture. And it's all about the word. It's all, the, all about the word. And, uh, and, and you know that the word was at the beginning of creation, and the word uh, in, in the new covenant starts with in the beginning was the word and we need to bring back the word. And the early apostles gave themselves totally to the word of God. And in the word is all the, all the patents, all the patterns, all the designs, all the things that we need to do. If we get that word back, believe me, we will get all the principles for how the church of Jesus Christ should function. The first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say in this in this.
in this session is that the manifestation of the word, the incarnate word, is called sonship. When the word becomes flesh, that word takes on a body. And the, mature, the, 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 the matured expression of that body is called son of God. Son of God. What we must produce if, is not just preaching the word and boring people to death. That word must become flesh in every single one of us. The divine design of God is that the word must become flesh and dwell amongst us so that people will behold the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, that word in us must reflect itself as if when people look at us, they can say, this is surely the Son of God. That's the ultimate. God does not want us to produce members in our church. God wants us to raise sons in our churches. Not sons of Thamo or Mangaliso or one of us great men of God. No, sons of God. Fathered into that purpose. God wants sons. Please believe me when I, when I told you yesterday, God never intended for us to be called Christians. Gentiles used it, that, that term to describe us. It's a very noble term that's a Christian. It means somebody that looks like Christ. But Christ was the Son of God. Christ was the Son of God. Christ in each one of us should produce sonship in us. We should become sons of God. I believe firmly that we need to tell our people that we are not Christians. I, th I believe that we need to tell them we are the sons of God. We should not stop people from describing us as Christians. But we need to conscientize our people that the ultimate is not that you become a member of a church, you hold on until death comes or the Lord comes, and then you fly away. The ultimate is that if we are the sons of God, then in us our Father is glorified. Sons glorify the Father. The glory of a father is his son. God is patiently waiting for the child to become a son. In this present season, the emphasis is that if we can feed a person with the word, that word will become flesh. It will manifest and people will see God. So I've come to a place, and this is just recently, I've had a quantum shift in my thinking. For a long time I thought if I could have a great church with large numbers of people, that's it. And believe me, we have some of the largest churches in the earth today. Largest. In the history of, of the church, we have not seen more people fill buildings like we see today. Hundreds of thousands in Nigeria, in some parts of South Africa, we've got large congregations. But cities are not changed. Nations are not changed. Because we've got too many believers and not sons of God. All of creation is waiting for the manifestation, the unveiling of the sons of God, not believers. You believe to get saved, but after you got saved, you must migrate to sonship. The child must become a son. And to us, a child is born, but a son is given. That took 30 years in the life of Jesus, showing us again 
that there is a developmental process that brings us from child to son. So the ultimate objective is to produce sons, because believe me when I tell you this, a child never sits on the throne, only a son. And we can prophesy, we can walk around cities, we can plead the blood, we can do spiritual warfare, nothing is going to happen. And believe me, because it can't contradict the scriptures, until we raise up houses that can produce the sons of God. And so spiritual fathering has got to do with producing the sons of God, not believers that can quote scriptures. And Jesus is the pattern, is the prototype of that. And you know that heaven declared upon him that the kingdom will come when heaven pronounces upon you, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Sons occupy the gates of the city, and that was a promise that God gave to Abraham. Your sons, your seed, will, produce, will, will occupy the gates of the city, which means seats of influence that will determine the administration of human society. So we need to produce sons. For that to happen, we have to, understand, we have to change our ecclesiology of the church. There are many metaphors for the church that are beautiful pictures of what the church is. The church is a woman, the church is a man, the church is an army, the church is a city, the church is a nation, the church is many things, many things. You can go and study it. Uh, the church is a pregnant woman, etc. But for me, one thing that is not a metaphor, that is not an imagery, but it's a literal reality, is that the church is God's family. The church is God's family. When we say the church is a, was a woman, it does not mean that the church is, 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 is feministic in its behavior. Because that, that picture of the church has so corrupted the earth that we're not producing the masculine spirit in the church. The, the drive, the desire to rule, and I'm not anti-female here. I'm just telling you about the, the construct of gender. When we overemphasize any one of those metaphors, the church becomes that. But for me, why would God call the church a bride or a woman? After all, in heaven, you neither marry nor give in marriage. There's no sexual relationship because, I mean, Jesus is our brother. And that will become incest. So what is the picture of a bride? It's very simple. Or a woman. It's simple. The primary objective of a woman, apart from many things she does, is to produce the man-child. To carry the incorruptible seed. God impregnates the church with the ability to reproduce and replenish after its kind. We are supposed to produce the man-child the sun that will destroy, that will behead, decapitate the, the beast and its system. And you can only do that when the child becomes a son. As long as the church is a child, it's not going to rule over anything. We can talk about the cattle on the thousand hills belonging to the Lord and the gold and the silver in the ground his. But we will fast not because we want to fast, but because we don't have meat. And we can't have that anymore. We can't have that anymore. We have to produce sons. Not in our name, please I hear me, because some have abused these teachings. They've abused it for their personal gain. 
these are wicked men that control people for their own personal gain. We can't have that. So our ecclesiology has to change, and it has to change the fact that a church is a family. And the words for family in the Greek and Hebrew sometimes get lost in translation. By hit um, in the Hebrew for house, which also means family, or oikos in the, in the, in the Greek for family. Um, and, 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 and see, see how it's shifted my view. I'm going to share my experience with you now. When you start to view the church as a family, words like house, the church met from house to house, doesn't become cell group to cell group, domestic unit to domestic unit. The church met from house to house. They met corporately in the temple. That means they met as a corporate. The church in the city of Jerusalem met together. Then they went and met in family units, literally meaning they broke bread from one family with another family. They administrated the grace of God. This is not just simply the communion. This is the administration of grace. So our ecclesiology should be that that which I had is not a church as an institution of religion, but that which I had is a family, is a family. God takes the orphan, the widow, the solitary, according to Psalms. God takes the solitary and he places them in families. Does the Bible say that? True religion, pure and undefiled, James chapter 1, is to care for the widow and to visit the orphan and vice versa. What does that mean? I mean, last night we had dinner in, an, in a place that takes abandoned kids. And that's a great job. I'm not in any way discounting the importance of orphanages and humanitarian programs. But that's got nothing to do with what God is speaking about. I mean, we have all these programs in Peter Maddisburg at our community center. We feed people every day. We do all of this. But true religion has got nothing to do with humanitarian, the humanitarian side, as far as I read the scriptures. True religion is when we apply the principle of Malachi chapter one, uh, chapter 4. And I will send to you the spirit of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons. And the hearts of the sons to the fathers, lest I smite the earth with a curse. Period. Full stop. And then we have almost 430 years of silence. What is the point? In the days of Elijah, if we study Elijah, you will discover there were many men but absent fathers in the earth. And God refers to the days of Elijah as having many widows' houses. And you know that's not true, because one of the houses he went to had a husband, but he was absent. The, this woman, the Shunammite, she spoke to her husband and said, can we build an upper room for the prophet? Am I correct? Can we? Not a basement, an upper room. In other words, let's make him our covering. And this man was silent. He was mute. Mute. Even when his son later, the son that would be given to them by promise, and that's what the spirit of a father does. It produces sons in a house of barrenness. So it does. This woman, a, a son has a migraine and, and dies, becomes terribly sick. 
in the field with his father in, at business. The father doesn't know what to do because he doesn't have the qualities of fathering. He sends it to the mother who takes it, takes the child to Elijah. And he raises him from the dead. You know the story. You know the story. Here's the point. The spirit of Elijah, apart from the fact that he's a prophet, is that he brings a fathering grace over a nation. What we are lacking in this country, and in many countries of the world, including the United States of America, is that we cannot produce fathers. We can produce male-dominated leaders, but not fathers. We have what I call pastor-headed churches, but not father-led churches. A pastor-headed church, whether you're male, does not imply it's fathered. So there has to be a shift, firstly, that the church is a family. And you know what's a governmental structure of a family? I did a test with my little boy when he was much smaller, when God first gave us the set of teachings by revelation. Because, I mean, I knew it theologically. I knew it academically, but I never saw it. The church is a family. I saw it as the church coming on a Sunday to get spiritual input, somebody praying for them, giving them a prophecy, keeping them going till the next week. The same people come for the same prophecies next week. And you have to cast the same demons out again. But when the church is a family, then you understand automatically. I asked my son, what is the governmental structure of a family? He was five years old. He smiled at me and said, mommy, daddy, me. That's the order of a family. And we're trying to build a fivefold government for our churches. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor. The word pastor is only used twice, I think, in the whole of the New Testament. When shepherds watch their flock at night, when poymen watch their flocks at night. And in Ephesians chapter 4. There's only one reference in the whole of the New Testament to the fivefold. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. And we built our whole churches on a hierarchical system of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And we've missed it. If the church is a family, that's why the Bible can be so silent about the governmental structure. Because the governmental structure is simple. A father leads a family. What do you have if you don't have a father in the family? Remove the father from the family. You have a widow's house, you have an orphanage. How do you bring back this grace? Bring back the spirit of father, and even single mothers will say, I'm no more a widow. And children that are parentless will say, I am fathered. Why? Because the true church, the eternal church, is a family. God takes the solitary, and he places them in families. <clears throat> in East London, if you have a thousand churches, they're not thousand churches. There's one church made up of family units. Whether you have 10,000 members or 50 members, you're a family headed by a father. Obviously, there's an administration to it, and you can study tribalism in the Old Testament. You study genealogy. I couldn't understand why God will spend so much of time boring us with lists of names, like this man begot another. Genesis chapter 4, uh, bits and pieces of, of Genesis chapter 5, the book of Chronicles. Matthew's gospel, starting with genealogy, I've come to the conclusion 
God is interested in generational building, and God wants to build by having families on the earth. And God shows us that, that he meticulously gives attention to that. I mean, when I first read the Bible, I never read all those chapters. I, my, my good friend who's now gone on to be with the Lord, Franz Duplessis, said he would read the Bible so many times in a year. So I got up after him in one of the conferences and said, Franz, can I ask you publicly, did you really read the Bible? And he looked all red in his face. He was a, he's an Afrikaner man. You know, they get red when you challenge them. And I was doing it very humbly. <laughs> Jokingly, I was teasing him. And he said, I read it. And I said, did you read all the genealogies? He says, no, I just skipped that. Then I said, you didn't read the Bible, <laughs> the whole Bible. And um, he te when we teased, we used to laugh about it. But the fact of the matter is, because your grandfather's name is not there, you're not going to read it. Okay? But God put it there to tell us of how he built. And all God is interested in is, in is, how do you raise a son? And some men had many kids, but only one was named. Many. Abraham had many children, but he will only name uh, Isaac. I mean, he had Esau. I mean, uh, 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 Ishmael. Uh, if you study Adam, many children, but only one line uh, is highlighted. And God is looking for sons. And sons are grown up in a family. You know, look at hermeneutical tools, uh, things that we have segmented. I mean, I'm seeing it now for the first time. Do you know that you can't define love? You can define it theoretically, academically, theologically, systematically. But you cannot define love. Because love is only defined in a family. Do you know that, that well, I, I've now corrected my view on unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. Actually, I think the Hebrew word is one, but we, the translators say unity. Dwell together as one, the word one. I think we must migrate from an, from an ecumenical view of unity to oneness. One, one. Jesus never prayed that we be united. Uh, Jesus prayed that we be one. And I think we must go and reread the, the words, uh, the root words too. Words translated as unity in Ephesians chapter 4. That they may be, I think it should be the oneness of the spirit, not the unity of the spirit. The oneness of the faith, the one body, etc. So we need to look at these things because ecumenically we are trying to create a unity, but, but it's a fragile unity. God wants one, a single, indivisible, uncomplicated unit called one. And God wants us to be so singularly and uncomplicatedly one that when he looks at us, he just sees us one. But, but think about this idea of oneness. You cannot get oneness but in a family. There may be a diversity and, uh, you know, uh, uh, of components that constitute the one. And the design of each one, I mean, we have one family with three sons and a wife in it. One wife. <laughs> um, one family. But each one is so different. But when people look at us, they just see us as one unit. One unit. This oneness, this integration of, of, of the various, you know, designs and, uh, and components and uh, the peculiarity of each member is lost when you just become the Naidu family. You just become one family with a plurality of expression. And God wants us one. How do you understand oneness? 
You can never understand it by just trying to have a constitutional program or a set of teachings. You can't bind people together by just a set of teachings. But in a family, if the people say, I'm, I belong to that family, there's oneness. Oneness. Love. I mean, you'll never know love but in a father's house. Let's be honest here. There's about 40 or 50 of us in this room. Can you honestly say you love each other? Come on, let's be honest. You can say it theoretically, but not honestly. Why? Because love has a demonstrative part to it. It's called charity. And everyone has a need here. Will you dig into your pocket for everyone? No. But in a, in a family, would you go the extra mile for your son, your daughter, your children, your parents? Yes. Why? Because your love in a family produces charity. The early church did not have needs because they knew how to care for their own families. So suddenly, if we go and revisit and reconceptualize the church as a family, but that's not going to happen until we change a mentality because, you see, the word family is the word patria in the Greek. And the root to patria is the word pater which means father. So if you don't have a father, you can't have a patria, patria, a family. In simple language, to have family, you have to have the spirit of the father. That's why Jesus in the Godhead defers everything to the father. The, the, the Trinity, even though God is one, the Trinity is that God is the head of that whole. And he's known for nothing more than love. More than love. If we are going to shift from pastor-headed churches to father-led churches, the first thing we need to understand is that the man who leads the church is not known by his clever preaching or his charismatic presentation of who he is. He must be known for love, not for great preaching. For love. And love always seeks the interest of others, not yourself. And in love, there's no prejudice. There's, there, there's, there, I mean, you can go and read the whole list of things. Love covers a multitude of weaknesses. So when we say we're going to change our leadership structure, the first thing we have to do is understand that the one who leads must be known as a person who can love those people. Love them. And it's in an environment of love you get edification, correction, and a building up of the people. The second thing with love is that it has no motives for personal gain. No desire for personal gain with love. Love always seeks the interest of the other. In other words, if I'm raising a family, if I love my wife as much as she would submit to me, I must do for her more than I would do for myself. But in the case of of, of the father in heaven, after he created, and Adam was his first son, according to the record in, in Luke chapter 3. Adam was the son of God. God chose to incarcerate himself, and this is key to father leadership. He chose to incarcerate himself by placing himself in an environment called Sabbath rest. And since God has never worked, every time he does work, it's through the principle of deputization. In other words, he's represented in the things he created, whether it is in a seminal form or through his son. 
God will only be seen in his son and not in himself. So the principle of, of, of fathering is that you remain invisible but only become visible to the ones you raise. It's a principle of representation and deputization, which, which implies that I'm not saying fathers won't stand on stages and teach. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we will not be visible from time to time. But the ultimate objective is, I want to be, the father must say, I want to be glorified in the son. The son will glorify me, not me. In other words, I'm not insecure. I want my son to have two portions of what I have. I want my son to have double reward, double grace, double honor. In fact, everything I create is for my son. That's transgenerational building. So God is calling for us in the season to build a church on, on a new style of leadership. And this is not servant leadership. This is father leadership. But a true father is a servant because he seeks to give everything to his son. And I can go on and on highlighting this because Joseph for me is a classical example. I know there's schools of thought that Joseph died early. But there's no proof of that. We at least know that he was there at the age of 12, and maybe at the age of 13 he would have had to present his son to the temple, to the elders, because that was the age when you presented your son, the age of mature, maturity. Joseph would have had to do a few things for Jesus. When God said, God did not say to Joseph, and you must understand this, this let, me, let me backtrack a bit. Let me make this statement. When Caesar Augustus released a decree to the world that he was ruling over, that each man must find his father's house or the house of uh, the city of his father and register there. A whole re-socialization program took place in the earth. And it, it, it preceded the advent of Christ being born. In other words, every man had to go back into time and re-study his prophetic and his physical lineage. Every man had to ask himself, who is my father? Where's my father's house? And what is the source of my, pro my prophetic destiny? He had to study prophecies. He had to study lineage. In the case of Joseph, he would have gone back right to the days of Elimelech and found how this man almost got disconnected from his destiny by leaving the land of Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, and going to Moab, the city that mocks the spirit of fathering. Moab means who needs a father, what father. Um, it's, a it's the land of Moab. Moab is, was the son of, of, of the first daughter of, 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 of Lot. And, um, and Moab, when, and he was produced by incest, by illegal procreation processes. And, uh, and when Moab was produced, the daughter called him Moab, meaning who needs a father as long as I can get the impartation? That's what it literally means. And you know the land of Moab's, Moab kills fathers. I wish we can go to Pergamos and study the teaching about the man that called Antipas that was eliminated. And God said, the place that Antipas occupied, Satan now sits and rules. And this church, Pergamos, means to be a church elevated. Has, and this is a church of spiritual warfare, a church that protects the purpose of God. You can read it in the book of Re Revelation. And this is a church with a long list of great accolades. 
And God says, but I know where Satan lives. He lives in the place that you killed Antipas. Antipas means one who substitutes for the Father. One who represents the Heavenly Father. That's what Antipas means. A father that plays a, a role of, uh, of representation. And when you remove the spirit of Antipas from your church, the devil can come and camp there because the, God understands the principle of set man or the principle of leadership. The man over the house rules the house. If he's no more there, Satan has the right to occupy that space. And that's why in our nation today, you know, we have the problems we have. We recognized, uh, you know, our, the father of this nation, and we called him father, Nelson Mandela. And you know our problems were less there. But then the moment we stopped seeing fathers or exposed fathers or use rebellion to remove fathers, we opened the door for curses in our land. And in our churches today, you can do your warfare, you can do all of that. If we don't bring back the spirit of Antipas to our churches, we will have orphaned gatherings and widows, widowed houses. Hear me carefully. That's why I'm saying if the church is a family, it can only be a, be a family when you bring back the spirit of father. And you know what happened to Elimelech and his two sons, Marlon and Elion? They all died in the land of Moab. You had a widow's house. Until Naomi said, we need to go back to Bethlehem and find a father, a kinsman redeemer, in the person of Boaz, who will later on produce Obed, will produce Jesse, and 14 generations later, you'll have Jesus. David, Jesus. If we don't bring back the spirit of fathering into our churches, and this re-socialization program was before the baby could be born, Joseph had to find his father's house. And it so happened to be in Bethlehem. And when he found his father's house, the baby was born. Similarly, I believe we're going to see a manifestation, an advent of Christ like we've never seen. And there's a re-socialization program taking place presently where every man has to find his father's house and get reconnected to the prophetic destiny. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so as I start to wrap up, and I'm throwing these things out. We've got this done in, in, you know, in extensive teachings on our website so you can get the greater detail to these things. But I believe that, that we've created celebrity preachers and not fathers. And, and may I close with this statement? When we start to establish the church as a family and the people know that's my father, some may leave us. Because if you don't belong, if you know that's not your father's house, you're going to go and find your father's house. But when we've sorted this mess out, we will no more have a migrant community. We will never have a gypsy culture. I was in, 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 in Europe, Eastern Europe, and I saw the gypsies, beautiful-looking people. Some of them with blue eyes because of cross-pollination. And, um, and, and beautiful skin, beautiful people, but living like beggars and vagabonds. I couldn't believe it. And when I asked about this, the gypsies, how did they end up in Europe? Because they look like people of my color, from, from India and so forth. The story is told that they were they're part of a lost race. And the reason why they are gypsies is because they are all moving from place to place looking for their fathers. 
literally. Beautiful looking people living in squalor, in the mire of filth. Believe me when I tell you, it's sickening when you see how bad. They live like they're 200 years behind time. Absolute squalor. And they are a displaced people that don't know who their fathers were. And they move. They can't settle. That's, what's hap- that's a picture of the church today. I, was, I had the privilege with Dr. Sam Solon during the 100-year uh, revival of Pentecostalism to go to the actual spot where the Azusa Street revival was, was, was born and speak there in, w- in one of the sessions and pray about this new season that's coming upon the church. And I'll never forget this on the streets of L.A. We were walking and I saw beggars all over, sleeping, homeless people, sleeping under bridges, on the pavements and so forth. And, and I said, God, how is it possible that one of the greatest revivals that transformed lives like mine, that started in this spot, could produce so much of beggars in such, such a famous city in the world? And God said to me, that's a picture of my church today. In the midst of so much of life, my people live like gypsies, they're destitute, they're homeless, they're beggars. That's what he said to me. And now I understand it's all got to do with fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. And do you know how that often mentality operates in the church today? The desire to survive, to feed people egotistically with good words like, it's going to be well with your soul, God's going to do a new thing, give people a prophetic word to tell them what their destiny is. This is all erroneous. Because when you know God as your father, and you know he's placed you in a family. You don't have to tell anybody anything. Your father will take care of you because we can study the birds. They neither sow nor reap, but your father in heaven takes care of them. And so when we bring back the spirit of family into our churches and we start to become fathers, not dictators, not autocrats, not paternalistic in our leadership, but fathers, I can tell you, we'll see healing take place. And there'll be rest. We would not even need orphanages. Families will take in the kids. The poor will be taken care of. There'll be an equalization of wealth. We don't have that yet. What we have is people just coming to a venue for church and they go away to suffer out there. We need to correct this. And this present apostolic season is calling for that change to take place. I'm saying all of this just to provoke your inquiry and your search for, the, for, for models that will work in the church. And believe me when I tell you the American model is not working. Let's get back to the biblical model of how the church is functioning. The Lord be with you. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes break and then we'll have some questions and answers.